from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. It's the final week of the 2021 legislative session, and State Senator Lauren Arthur has a lot to say about what might get debated and what may fall by the wayside. The Kansas City Democrat joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to break down a frenetic final week and what to expect when the legislature comes back for at least one special session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City, she is the senator from Missouri's beautiful 17th district, which encompasses most most of Clay County, and more importantly, an admirer of former Governor Guy Park's clothing attire during press conferences. He is a fashion icon and I hope to imitate his style. <laughs> By the way, that's Lauren Arthur. Uh, you, you actually, you were on the show last time right after you won your seat in 2018. You recently won re-election. So you get four more years in this chamber before you are termed out and have to do something else. Is that, that's correct, by the way, right? That's correct, yeah. Um, and at that point, I will probably retire, but you never know. <laughs> we will talk about your political future probably in a 2023 episode of Politically Speaking. It's, <laughs> we can talk about that later because there's a lot to talk about for the last week of session. We're recording this on Friday morning, um, and this will be released sometime on Monday when the last week of the legislature is going on. So it's not out of the question when you hear this that some things may have already happened. I want to put that disclaimer out there. Um, what's kind of your general expectations for the last week of session? What do you think will be a ma major issues? What do you think are going to be some issues that fall by the wayside? Sure. Well, I, I guess I'll start with a caveat that this has been a pretty surprising and unpredictable year. And so everything that I say going forward may be completely wrong. And so I apologize to any listeners um, if, I, if I share any misinformation or, or if I, my predictions turn out to be inaccurate. But I think the fact that we passed an ESA bill yesterday, um, to, to my surprise really, uh, opens up the floodgates for a lot of pretty impactful legislation to be debated next week. Um, so in exchange for the Senate taking a vote on ESAs, I suspect the House will take an up or down vote on the gas tax increase. Um, it's not clear to me whether or not that has the votes to pass at this point. I think probably it fails, but um, I know that people will be working on whipping votes to get that gas tax increase passed, which is a top priority of the Senate pro tems. 
Um, we have a lot of legislation that we need to, to get done, including the FRA, which um, means you know over a billion dollars for our state and federal funding to support our healthcare and, and hospital system. Um, we also know that things like voter ID and initiative petition reform are out there looming as threats, in my opinion. And, um, and the fact that we have a week to defeat those measures makes me feel a little better. Um, you know, it, the last week, especially in the Senate, is all about how much time the majority party is willing to spend on an issue. And the more time that you spend debating something like voter ID, the less time we have to pass members' priorities. Um, my hope is that we avoid a situation with a PQ. And I would say that this year, the Republicans, um, we've seen a lot of Republican infighting in the Senate. And so I don't know that they would be able to gather the signatures required to, um, to, to issue a PQ, especially because they're divided on a number of issues and can't really seem to find consensus on, on um, a variety of topics. So while I don't wanna completely dismiss the idea that we may fi find ourselves in that kind of situation, I think it's pretty unlikely at this point. By the way, for our listeners who have not listened to this show over the last seven or eight years, a PQ is a previous question. It basically kills a filibuster. It used to be a very rare tool, but it's become increasingly less rare in uh, the past couple years. I want to go back to ESAs, which is a, an acronym that stands for, I think, Empowerment Scholarship Accounts. I may be getting that slightly wrong. But basically, and it's cynically, I might I might suggest that ESAs is a term used to um, is a term used in place of something like voucher, which has a pretty unpopular connotation. And that's why we use the term ESAs instead of vouchers. Right. And what it does is and this has been a proposal that's been put forth for several decades amongst some Republicans is it, it sets up a tax credit. Somebody donates to. A, a entity that provides scholarships that can be used to send kids to private schools. They get a tax credit. It passed. It's going to the governor. And this is the sponsor, Representative Phil Cristofanelli of St. Charles County, talking about the exact scenario you were talking about before, about how passage of that could affect the last week of session. You know, it, this building is always full of surprises. And so I always hesitate to guess what, what might happen next. But uh, as you know, and I think everyone is aware, uh, big legislation like this is always subject to a series of negotiations and compromise. And I think when you see the uh, upper chamber move on, on a big priority for the House, uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that you'll see a lot of movement in the House on priorities of the Senate. And uh, I think uh, we could be in for you know, a productive final week of session. Now, I got to say, I was really surprised this passed very quickly. I was expecting an all-hands-on-deck filibuster because, as you mentioned, a lot of Democrats and education groups hate this idea. They see it as siphoning money away from public schools. Proponents say that it provides a pathway for people in not-so-good school districts to go to better ones. 
was the reason the Democrats decided not to stand up on this bill because they knew it was probably going to pass and they want other things to pass, too? Well, I'll start by saying that I'm among the opponents who think that this is really wrongheaded education policy. And I think it takes us down the path of privatizing education, that it it diverts uh, funds away from public schools. And, you know, very cynically, they sort of targeted it at districts like mine that are represented by Democrats and carved out the rural parts of the state that tend to be um, represented by Republicans because Republicans don't want vouchers in their districts. And so that was a way to pick up votes through political gamesmanship. Um, my, it was very disappointing because I think the Senate um, members of the upper chamber have decided we really wanna tackle the major problems in education. We've started an informal working group in identifying priorities and thinking through solutions. We know that it's gonna take time. And at the end of the day, vouchers will target you know, a handful of students but we still have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, um, of Missouri kids in public schools. And so we really need to look at our system as a whole and make sure that every child has an ex- excellent educational opportunity. And so again, you know, this, we see our, our although this is a, an okay budget year, um, because of proposals like tax cuts and Um, some of the tax policy that we've seen implemented by Republicans over the last decades, our general revenue continues to sort of shrink and and more and more entities compete for those limited resources. And this is just another example where eventually we're going to have to make tough decisions between adding more money towards public education or, um, you know, diverting the $75 million towards vouchers. So, I, um, again, I think that's the wrong policy. I wish that we would have taken a different approach. Um, And I will also say there was a much better version of an ESA bill. We worked with Senator Mike Searpoy and he had a bill that targeted vouchers towards the poorest students and the worst performing schools. And like I mentioned, instead, the bill that passed is targeted at different geographic locations, regardless of what those public schools look like. Um, So that was disappointing. I I will say there is, (laughs) as a member of the super minority party, we have to manage expectations. And we knew that there was no opportunity to make changes to this bill that no matter what, they wanted to truly agree and finally pass this bill. They didn't wanna send it back over to the house. And so usually a filibuster is a a means to get at changing the bill and finding compromise. And so without that opportunity, you know, I I don't know what would have, I don't see the outcome ending any differently if we had spent hours and hours and hours debating the bill because they weren't going to accept our amendments. And we knew that it was going to end in an up or down vote. I, you know, I perhaps someone can make an argument that we could filibuster until next Friday. We still have a budget we need to pass. And um, it's, it's, it demands a lot from 10 people to filibuster for days and days and days. I, 
suspect it, we would come to a point where members are frustrated that their bills aren't passing and we could find ourselves in a PQ situation um, as well. So I, all of those things combined, we also believed that the vote was gonna be closer. We knew that some of the people who ended up voting for the bill privately agreed that this was a bad idea. And so we thought that those people would, would um, do the right thing and vote against it. And for whatever reason, um, they, they switched their vote and it ended up being not so close in the end. So I, um, but with that being said, it does mean that we are in a position to move on to other things. I know that there was a lot of pressure from the pro tem put on members to, to take this vote um, because there is some bargaining going on about his gas tax that sits over in the house. And as a result of our moving on ESAs, now there's the opportunity for the house to take up the gas tax and we'll see what they decide to do with it. I wanna go back to the, the photo ID bill that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, mm -hmm. because it also includes um, a no excuse in-person absentee period, which some people may be thinking, who cares? It should be no absentee for everybody, but it would be like the most significant chipping away at Missouri's excuse-based absentee system in a permanent way. Now, I'm sure no Democrat is gonna vote for this because it authorizes photo ID again. Um, but given that this is also something that's likely to be PQ'd, is this something that's just, you know, you try to get the best of a bad situation and you move on to something else? Or is this a die on the sword issue just because Democrats for a long time have opposed a government issued photo ID requirement that would be in this legislation as well? I think that it's no coincidence that Republicans are trying to pass photo ID and measures that make it more difficult to vote because their preferred presidential candidate lost. You know, I, it's important to put, put it in context and ask why do they wanna make it more difficult for people, particularly in democratic areas to vote. And um, it, the right to vote is foundational to our democracy. I've been really concerned by some of the anti-democratic um, actions take place like the refusal to fund Medicaid, even though voters approved it. And now it's that language um, making Missourians eligible for Medicaid is in our constitution. I just see it as part of a larger pattern to um, disenfranchise people when political outcomes don't go the Republicans way. Um, and I think that's really dangerous. It, it is an existential threat. And um, is definitely worth opposing and fighting against. And I feel that I have a moral obligation to make sure that people have the right to vote and that we are not only upholding, but strengthening our democratic norms and institutions. And um, so when it comes to the actual bill, you know, I, we know that they are going to try and pass something. I think we are trying to work in good faith to find a balance where um, Republicans feel like they're getting measures that, that help secure elections and Democrats are, are also getting something that um, 
that increases access to the ballot. So, you know, I agree that I can't, I can't imagine any Democrat will end up voting for a bill, but it is our hope that we chip away at things like the no excuse absentee um, voting, that maybe we expand the number of weeks that people can, can um, have access to early voting. And um, at the end of the day, it will come down to the details on whether or not Democrats continue to stand up in opposition and try and, and derail a vote. This is the first year of, you know, two-year terms. And so, and next year is the election year. So my, my hope is that we will be able to delay this for as long as possible. But even if we defeat it this year, I assume it will come back next year. And so we're going to work to make sure that, um, you know, we get the best possible version of a bill because we know at the end of the day, this is something they want and this is something they'll end up getting. We'll be right back after this quick break with Senator Lauren Arthur, a Democrat from Kansas City. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Senator Lauren Arthur. Uh, She is a Democrat from Clay County, Missouri, which is colloquially known as the Northland. Am I getting that right? I'm not good with Kansas City geography. We we are proud Northlanders, and um, I like to think of the 17th district as God's country. Okay. Well, I think the 4th district is also God's country where (laughs) I happen to live, and I hope Senator May uh, hears that as well. I want to go to to Medicaid expansion. So we're kind of shifting into what comes after session. Um, so you're, you're all going to pass the budget today on Friday when we're recording this. Medicaid expansion is not going to be in it. It's not going to be funded. Um, I think that that is a foregone conclusion at this point. But what happens next, I think, is a really unknown territory. Because as you kind of alluded to, the Constitution says that Governor Parson's administration has to open up enrollment for people in the Medicaid expansion population. Um, and I, I checked with the Department of Social Services. They have put an amendment to the federal Medicaid agency to do that. So they're in process in doing that. So the question is, like, do they offer enrollment but don't actually provide the expansion population with anything that they can use? Do they offer enrollment and give the expansion population, like, full access to Medicaid and then – the Medicaid program runs out of money and you have to come back and do a supplemental budget and you basically expand Medicaid anyways. And this whole thing was just sort of like delayed gratification. What do you think happens next with Medicaid expansion? Well, I, I agree. The ball is in the governor's court at this moment. Um, And it's my hope that on July 1st, people start enrolling who are eligible and they start receiving access to healthcare um, that so many people have have been in des- a desperate need of for years and years and years. And, um, you know, I, I, I assume there will eventually be a lawsuit. And it's unfortunate that, you know, families that were depending upon Medicaid expansion, um, they're now left with, in limbo, they're left with a lot of uncertainty. Um, for more months. And so I think my hope is that we get people enrolled on July 1st. I think probably um, either an aggrieved party, someone who wants, who tries to enroll and is told no, 
will file a lawsuit or a hospital that um, offers treatment to someone who's in that Medicaid eligibility gap, um, if they are not reimbursed for those services, then they would file the suit. Um, I suspect the courts will, I, I mean, it's always difficult to predict what the courts are going to do, and I don't want to misspeak, but um, it's pretty clear to me that based on the language in the Constitution, people who fall in that category are eligible for Medicaid. So I agree that at some point, the lawmakers will come back, will pass a supplemental that includes funding for, for Medicaid expansion. And in fact, in, um, in the budget that will pass today, there, you know, there are hundreds of millions of dollars. I think they use the term like the Medicaid stabilization fund or something like that. And perhaps it's no secret that that's probably the money that would be used then to, to cover that population. We have money to, to cover um, Medicaid recipients. The state would receive tons of federal funding um, if we agree to, to pass, well, if we agree to comply with the Medicaid expansion. Um, and I haven't heard any good arguments for why we shouldn't do this. I, it's the, the, the opponents of Medicaid expansion are getting a little more creative in their reasoning. We've heard things like, well, my district didn't vote for it. And that's true, but there are a lot of districts that didn't vote for Governor Parson, and he's still the governor of the state. That's how statewide elections work. And so um, I think the arguments are pretty disingenuous, and this has all been a political game um, so that people aren't primaried in their Republican primary elections, or um, they can you know, put, put on a flyer that they opposed Medicaid expansion till the very end. And I think it's all really cynical and unfortunate and has real impacts on people's lives. Um, and that's been the hardest thing through the entire process. Receiving those emails, um, for example, I, I, I got an email from a grandmother whose um, son had been working at the same company for years and years and years, but did not um, have health care coverage through them. And her grandson was having chronic headaches but they didn't go to the doctor because they couldn't afford to. And it, it turned out that that grandson had a tumor and even eventually died from brain cancer. And so there are real people who have died as a result of not expanding Medicaid. And, um, and, and the son obviously would have fallen under that Medicaid expansion gap and, and his son would have had the opportunity to receive preventative care before it became um, a life-threatening situation. And so, you know, I guess people can play political games or make political arguments, but real Missourians have lost their lives as a result of this inaction, and I don't want to see this delayed any longer. So let's hear one of the arguments that you alluded to from Senator Paul Wheeland, who's a Republican from Jefferson County, and will be term-limited out of the Senate. I, I don't know if he'll run for local office or Congress or statewide office, but he's certainly not going to run for the Senate again. This is what he told me about the reason he opposes Medicaid expansion. I think you have the majority of the Senate 
that shares this thought with the majority of the House that it's not a fiscally prudent thing for us to do to expand Medicaid at this time, especially when the, the ballot language didn't include a way to fund it. So, you know, if, if everybody says, well, you got to follow the Constitution, we are following the Constitution. The Constitution says you shouldn't approach, you, unless things are included as an appropriation in the ballot initiative, how to fund it, then we shouldn't fund it. So we're being fiscally conservative. Um, and I think that we believe that is the best course for the state right now. So that argument has probably been the main one that Republicans have used to not expand Medicaid. They say that the fact that there wasn't a specific funding stream in this constitutional amendment means not only did they not have to fund it, but they argue if there was a specific funding stream, this wouldn't have actually passed. So I want you to address that point, because that out of all the things that have been said, that's been said the most. And from reading the Constitution, I think that they're right that they don't have to fund it. I think that there is a whole nother question about whether there's political pressure from hospitals and doctors that don't get reimbursed that makes them change their mind. So I want you to address that point. Well, to his credit, the governor included funding for Medicaid expansion, um, proposed, you know, 100, 100 some million dollars towards Medicaid expansion. And as a result of that proposal, we would have received over a billion dollars in, in federal funds. And honestly, we could have put that in a, in a fund of, on its own and use that to um, use that as an appropriation to fund Medicaid expansion for the next 10 years. So I don't accept that we didn't have um, money to do that this year, especially given how much additional federal money is up for grabs and our budget, um, we're, we're expecting records setting surplus at this point um, to, to many people's astonishment, my, mine included, but that's, that's the reality of our financial picture at this time. Um, so I don't accept that we didn't have money. And I will also add that in the Senate during the committee process, Senator Lincoln Huff put forward a more measured um, expansion proposal where I think he, he would put something like $60 million towards Medicaid expansion, um, but would that would still allow us to draw down the additional federal money. And um, so there were different compromises and options put before the body and they just decided to reject it. And, um, you know, I don't think that their logic or reasoning on the turn uh, as it relates to the financial impact is really all that serious or accurate. Well, let's talk about a couple other things that could be brought up for a special session before we talk about the one thing that will be, which is redistricting. Um, you mentioned the FRA, which is the federal reimbursement allowance that you know medical entities like hospitals pay upon themselves to pay for Medicaid. Um, there, it's, it's held up right now because Senator Onder has a amendment on there that would I guess put in statute that no state money could go to a Planned Parenthood, basically. Um, do you expect that to be worked out before the end of session? Because I was just reading an article today from the Missouri Independent that it's not really like there would be extraordinary leverage in a special session to not do that. And it seems like you all are in a real pickle, so to speak, about passing that really, really important bill. So what, what's your prognosis on that? Yeah, this is a situation that's reoccurring. I, every year, um, members of the conservative caucus, and, and Paul Wieland isn't a, a 
official member, and there really isn't even a conservative caucus, um, caucus a conservative caucus anymore. But um, sort of the same senators use the FRA as leverage for other things, and so they take it hostage. They try to hijack the process, and in the end, we all know that we have to pass this. Um, so you're right to say that if this doesn't get done this session, um, it's not, a, I mean, it, it is a huge deal, but we know that there are other ways to make sure that it passes, including coming back for a special session. I think um, leadership will find a way to get it done. And so um, while it remains a, a possibility that we'd be back for an FRA special session, I think probably we'll avoid that one and they'll figure out a way to get it done. American Rescue Plan money will be coming to the state eventually. I think it's going to be put into two parts. So you'll get a half of the $2.8 billion, I think, this year and the other half next year. Uh, we had Senator Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz on the show, and he indicated that the legislature likely won't have to come back into special session to appropriate that money because they may just be able to do that in January or February. Is that your, you're a member of the Appropriations Committee. Is that your expectation as well? Yeah, that's my understanding. I think we are still looking to the federal government for guidance on how we can appropriately use that money. Um, so it might make sense to wait. And there is a lot of flexibility in terms of timing. And we have several years before that money has to get spent or sent back. So um, I assume that uh, appropriating the ARF or what is it? American Rescue, American Rescue Plan. So that would be the AARP, almost, almost the AARP, but not quite. <laughs> Fully will use some of those dollars to support our seniors as well. Um, so the ARP dollars will be allocated during the normal budgetary process that starts next January. In the last five or six minutes we have, when we could spend, I, I've talked with you about redistricting before, we could probably spend an entire seven hours on redistricting, but I know my editor would cut it down to five. So um, that I'm is- I'm sure people would love to listen to hours and hours and hours of conversation about redistricting. So one of the things that absolutely will be done in a special session is congressional redistricting. Because the uh, granular data is not going to be available to the state until August or September, uh, there's really no way to do redistricting now. Now, Illinois is trying to do it, and uh, that's a whole nother story altogether because it kind of pokes us a hole in the idea that only Republicans gerrymander. But obviously, right. most of the states that are going to be you know, gerrymandering Democrats into oblivion are, are Republican states. So I, I want to make that clear. I'm going to be very blunt about this. Uh, Democrats have very little leverage to affect this map. It's going to be done in a special mm -hmm. session, so you can't mm -hmm. hold up something else to get a better map. Uh, you have a super minority in the legislature and a Republican governor. So there's not much you're going to be able to do to prevent uh, a 6-2 a to two map. Now, mm -hmm. the big question is, will the Republicans go for broke and try to create a 7-1 to one map where they try to basically disembowel the fifth district, which is held by uh, Emanuel Cleaver. Is that the district you're in, by the way? Are you in the sixth district? I want to make clear. I uh, So part of my district is um, Congressman Cleaver's district, but I live in Congressman Graves' district. Okay. just That's an important point to make here. So I'm going to play a clip. And now. it really is like 
you know, just across the street uh, is is the other district. Okay, so this is the reason why this yeah. yeah this is the reason why this point is important. I'm going to play a clip now from Dan Shaw. He is the House Chairman of the Redistricting Committee, and I asked him directly, "Are Republicans going to try and, you know, go after Cleaver's district and create a a seven to one map?" Here's his response. For me to tell you, no one's talked to me about all these different scenarios. I think I've heard almost every possible scenario. Though is, uh, I've reminded the committee and members uh, even when we're not in committee make sure you keep an open mind uh be careful what you ask for also senator talent taught me this once he said be careful what you ask for because you might just get it and and that would be the scenario you're talking about the if you go for broke uh, and try to really get something you, you be careful because the voters may it may come back to haunt you so here's the reason why i disagree with quote unquote election twitter that mo5 is in danger First of all, it can be used as a bargaining chip to prevent Democrats from like holding up a map when Republicans go after the second district. I'm sorry, second district Democrats, that district is going to become a 59 percent Republican district after redistricting. Would you agree with that, first of all? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that that is unsavable. I'm sorry. It's gone. But the fifth district, I don't think is unsavable because if to go on Representative Shaw's point, if they go too crazy, they could make the 6th district much more democratic and they could make the 4th district much more democratic. And if there's a wave democratic year, you go from a 7 to 1 map to like a 5-4 map because the 5th, the 6th and the 4th could flip based off that. What's kind of your feeling on this? Uh, and I understand that was a long preamble, but I wanted to make sure that people understood the the background before we talk yeah, about no, this. Yeah, no, and I, I really appreciate your insight on this issue. I know you've covered this closely. Um, I assume that we'll see a 6-2 map for the reasons that you've outlined. And additionally, you know, I think he, I think Congressman Cleaver has pretty good relationships with even Republican legislators. And so there isn't um, a, a visceral instinct to attack him or his district. And, you know, I think people are okay with trying to preserve that balance. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, we've gone from trying to play in at least three congressional districts down to two. Um, I, I agree that if they tried to take away um, Mo5, then that would backfire or have at least the potential to backfire. And I don't, you know, I don't think that I don't think that they see a real need to do that. And I think they see probably that it's not worth the risk to do so. The other reason why there may not be a lot of pressure nationally is because there are other ways Republicans can gain seats elsewhere in places like Texas and Florida and Ohio uh, to win back the majority. The majority does not hinge on Emanuel Cleaver winning reelection. As someone who lives in Kansas City on the other side of the state, I assume they'll go after Sharice David's district, and that might be another opportunity where they can pick up um, a Republican seat. I'm curious to see how that shakes out. Senator, thank you so much for your time and for all of our stories. STLPR.org, Politically Speaking, is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis you can find me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And how can people find you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? I am at Lauren Arthur Moe on Twitter. 
Um, and I think it's Lauren Arthur Moe on Facebook as well. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking.